Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. There's nobody business but ours. This is a one-shot thing we got going on here. You know, it could be like this always. Yeah, this thing grabs hold of us again, and we're dead. Back in 2005, the Brokeback Mountain trailer caught moviegoers off guard with its depiction of a romance between a couple of cowboys played by a pair of movie stars. It, of course, went on to become one of the most acclaimed films of that year. Did not get, however, the ultimate acclaim of the Oscars. I believe Mm. this is the one that lost Best Picture to Crash, which everyone hates now. So, yeah, unfortunate. This week, it is a Pride Month top five. It's our favorite and most formative LGBTQ plus films. That's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. There were so many good options to choose from, Josh, and yet somehow selecting five of my favorite and most formative queer movies was so much easier than choosing a single favorite film from our recent Sight and Sound Marathon. Yeah, I had to do rankings to help me with the Marathon Awards masterpieces, then the near masterpieces category, and then the really great films category. So it it was difficult for sure. Later in the show, we will wrap up that Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon with our Marathon Awards official title, TBD, on air. We'll do a little production meeting here. We will share our favorite performances, scenes, and yes, we will force ourselves to pick one best picture. Hopefully, Crash won't win at the last minute, Josh. Also, we'll play Massacre Theater and more. Here we are, Josh, celebrating Pride Month, doing a first here on the show over 18 plus years. We have never done an LGBTQ plus specific top five list. This was based off a listener suggestion that came in. And I think we're both excited to share these lists. You articulated it very well last week on the show. I'm not going to ask you to just repeat that, but 
folks have heard that word formative a few times here. Not just all very good LGBTQ plus films, but movies that maybe put us on a journey towards understanding, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Yeah, that's good. I think I think we talked about this within the context of a top five we did a couple of years ago, movies that educated us about racism. Um, you know, it's similar to white guys doing a top five about race-related movies. We wanted to somewhat take that more personal approach, that more formative approach. And so we're applying it somewhat similarly here. So these could be the top five that educated me about the LGBTQ plus experience. Maybe they're just top five enlightening queer movies. Something like that might be helpful. Basically for me, I think you feel a little bit more than I do solidly about your list being this could be my top five completely of LGBTQ plus movies, whereas I might shift a few titles around, but hopefully still we'll come away with 10 good films and talk a little bit about when we encountered them and how they helped us rethink some things maybe. Yeah, I think that's true in the end of my top three. My top three would be on this list, even if we were doing just a list of our favorite films that deal with this subject matter or introduce us to LGBTQ plus characters. But my four and five, although I love both films, probably fall more into that formative category. So with that, start us off your number five. So number five, to maybe complicate things even more for my list, some might not consider this an LGBTQ plus film. It's women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I believe it's been a while since I've seen this, but most, if not all, the characters involved are in heterosexual relationships. But this was one of the first Pedro Almodovar films I ever saw. And it did introduce me to his particular expression of an LGBTQ plus sensibility, let's say. It came out in 1988. I probably saw it maybe a good 10 years or so later, just mesmerized by this style. I've compared it before to a brightly painted spinning top. There are so many skewed camera angles going on here, changing your perspective, the brash colors, the whirly gig characters. Uh, this is a pretty wild ride. It's an ensemble movie, but I'll give you just the basics for those who haven't seen it. Peppa, played by Carmen Maura, is an impulsive, volatile actress who's just been dumped by her playboy lover, played by Fernando Guillen. And she's trying to track him down, butts heads along the way with his unstable ex-wife, played by Julieta Serrano, and also discovers he has a handsome son, played by Antonio Banderas. Most of this takes place in Peppa's apartment, so it's very much of a sex farce type production. You might even see something like this on the stage. For me, though, I think it wasn't just that style that was enlightening in terms of an LGBTQ plus aesthetic. It was the empathy that Almodovar brought to it. When I did finally see the movie, I wrote this, coursing with a sense of freedom, sexual and otherwise, Women on the Verge allows its characters to live life as if it were a high wire act. If they fall, Almodovar is there to catch them with a warm, accepting embrace. To watch the movie is to feel embraced, too. And I think for this list, Adam, I'd probably add just a, a slight twist on that. To watch the movie is to learn how to exercise that empathy, especially for stories that capture experiences that might be different from ours. So a very early tiptoe into someone who would become one of my favorite filmmakers, Pedro Almodovar, just kind of pried open that world for me. Yeah, Almodovar absolutely has to be in this conversation. I 
had seen women on the verge of nervous breakdown. It's been a long time. I want to say it was probably 2005 or 2006 in advance of an Almodovar marathon that we did here on the show. I had a lot of blind spots to fill in. I think we did that back in 07, so before your time here on Film Spotting. Josh, one of those films from the marathon probably would have made my list all about my mother, I think maybe is the film I would have gone with here. But there are so many others from his filmography that you could throw in. I don't remember enough about Women on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown. I just remember feeling like it was the perfect entree to Almodovar's work and that it was fun. So much fun, really is, yeah. You mentioned empathy, and that term does seem to get thrown out a lot these days when talking about cinema, that famous Roger Ebert quote about it. But It is the most appropriate term for this list in terms of how I was framing it in my mind and thinking about films where I could see myself for the first time in many cases. I could see myself in these characters and these characters are very different than me. Their experiences are very different than mine. And look, we could say that about most movies we see. I mean, yes, we probably do see, Josh, a lot of movies that are about straight white men. That doesn't mean that all of the experiences of the characters line up exactly with our lives. Of course they don't. That's part of the reason why we go to movies. But the distinction here, of course, is that we're talking about characters who, depending on the generation you're from, depending on where you grew up, depending on the people you were around, a lot of us grew up being taught or taking from the culture the notion that we weren't supposed to identify with these types of people. And if we did, we were supposed to feel shame for it. We might even be mocked or scorned if we actually admitted that we saw ourselves in these characters. So that, that thought was in my mind forming this list, thinking about those first times where I encountered these characters, very different experiences than mine, saw myself in them or saw my future self, potentially. I could see myself in them. And number five for me, I didn't go chronologically here, but my number five is the first movie I would have come across that introduced me to a transgender character. Longtime listeners know this is one of my all-time favorite films, formative in so many ways, but it's The World According to Garp, the George Roy Hill adaptation of John Irving's novel from 1979, a novel that was pretty popular and widely read and was fairly controversial or at least widely discussed. There was, there was a lot of discourse at the time about it from what I understand, and there were plenty of people who thought this is a book that could never be made. They certainly weren't sure how they were going to handle this character, the character being Roberta Muldoon, formerly Robert Muldoon, played by John Lithgow, former professional football player who Robin Williams Garp becomes not just friends with, but becomes best friends with. And I have to think, Josh, there was a subconscious impact this movie and this character had to have on me. I say that also because there was very little about the world according to Garb, I was consciously processing the age I saw it. I was seven when it came out. I saw it on HBO constantly over the course of being seven, eight, nine years old, and a lot of it was above me. It was a very adult film dealing with a lot of big and weighty topics. But I loved the movie. I loved Garp, and I loved Roberta whenever she appeared on screen. Her sense of humor her empathetic nature, 
her insights. And it's interesting to think about, Josh, that she, at the time this movie came out, would have been a threat then to a lot of moviegoers. A lot of moviegoers would have seen her as someone that they were afraid of or not aligned with in terms of her lifestyle. And many people still today would see this character and maybe reject it. I just saw her as a friend. I saw her as an extension of this family. There's a key scene where she's visiting and Garp and Roberta are playing with the two boys in the front yard, very sort of idyllic suburban environment in front of the house. And I think about the subtle subversiveness of showing her playing games with Garp and the kids in the yard, picking up the kids and giving them kisses, giving Garp a kiss on the lips before she goes. The movie plays all of this completely natural as it should be, as if there is nothing at all to question about any of this. And Lithgow doesn't do anything outward in his performance to make Roberta seem more feminine, I suppose. I, I do think to Lithgow there's a natural kind of gentleness to the way he speaks anyway, a very smooth voice. But I never, I never questioned her or I never thought of this character as a man portraying a woman. I thought of her as Roberta. It's all right. It's Jesus no sense making things any worse than they are. This whole house is full of... I know, I know. Everyone here has something missing or some wound that won't heal. And your mother tries to nurse them back to health. She's a wonderful person. Are you visiting somebody here? No, why? Well, you just seem like the only normal person around the place. Oh, I don't know. I was curious, as we look back on this film from the early 80s, what the feelings are about it now, what the feelings are around Roberta Muldoon and Lithgow's portrayal now. And I didn't find a lot. I also didn't devote hours to it. And I know today some would certainly question the casting of John Lithgow in this role and not an actual trans performer. But I found an article in the Paris Review from 2019. This was on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the book being released, and I thought this was really fascinating to consider. The writer says, Roberta Muldoon looms large in my reading of the novel, not because of her tall frame, but because she is three-dimensional, complex, and more maternal than any of the cis characters. She's also more thoughtful and aware of her gender. Roberta's surety in her womanhood doesn't make her stereotypically feminine either. She continues to be an athlete, running and playing squash with Garp. She also calls him often at two in the morning to cry about the latest man who's cast her aside as a novelty rather than a person. Roberta and her friendship with Garp, he considers her his best friend, exemplifies something about the novel as a whole. Even cis, straight white men are capable of being tolerant, of being empathic in their relationships as well as their art. Even they can learn. And maybe that's what the book is about more than anything else. More than gender and its messy expectations, more than violence and fear and death. Perhaps it is about the need for tolerance. Irving seems to think so. It's not good news that Garp is still irrelevant. We should be ashamed that sexual intolerance is still tolerated, but it is. Irving wrote that in his introduction to the 40th anniversary release. Advocate.com had this at number 169 on its 2014 list of the top 175 essential films of all time for LGBT viewers. It's number five on my list because I think a lot of those things that that writer was articulating about the character in the book absolutely translated to the screen with Lithgow's performance. Yeah, that's a question that could probably be asked of a number of films on both our lists. I think it did come to mind for me as well. 
for these older titles, how might they be received today? The conversation has shifted, understanding has shifted, and um, I think it's a it's a worthy question, worth asking, but also sort of one of the distinctions with our lists, right? We're kind of talking about where we were at, where the culture was at when these films first came out. Now, my number four still celebrated, I don't know, maybe monthly, possibly weekly at midnight showings across the country. It's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, by the time I saw this film, it came out in 1975, this sci-fi musical horror extravaganza. By the time I saw it, it had already cemented itself as an interactive theatrical experience. Fans dressing up as the characters, bringing props, interacting with what was happening on the screen. And that's actually how I first encountered it. Go back to 2005. I was film critic for the Naperville Sun and a theater out that way, Hollywood Boulevard, which is actually in Woodridge. They started having just a midnight series of the film doing these interactive screenings. And so to kick that off, they had a wild promotional screening. So I got the movie itself and that midnight experience both at the same time. And it's really hard to separate the two. I think I've seen it since just at home. But based on Richard O'Brien's stage musical, the film itself does feel like a party set as it is mostly in this castle of Dr. Frank and further devilishly played by Tim Curry. Feels feels sort of like a gay pride parade that's taken a few detours. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite From transsexual Transylvania Yet for as loud and out as this movie can be, it's incredibly welcoming. And that was my experience as well, seeing the movie at that promo screening with that enthusiastic crowd. It was like a big party under a big tent. Uh, That space and the film itself, it kind of makes room for the squares, you know, whether they're the clean cut couple played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon or, you know, me. So I was glad to encounter Rocky Horror Picture Show that way at that time. I have to imagine that Rocky Horror Picture Show didn't appear on too many ballots for the Sight and Sound Top 100. And these were all films as we were embarking on our marathon that were blind spots for us, that we were embarrassed to some extent as cinephiles and critics that we had never seen. That all said, Rocky Horror Picture Show has to be in my top five. I can't believe I'm saying out loud I still haven't seen. Oh, okay. I've never well, had the experience. apparently there is a film spotting outing in our future. I don't know if Music Box is still doing this, but uh, I know for a long time they were. And I'm very familiar with Hollywood Boulevard. I've been there a few times. I'm actually not too far from Woodridge in that theater where I'm located. And I just looked it up on their website. They do have at least two showings a year. They just had one in April, and they've got another one coming up July 1st. Oh, so I well, don't there know if I'll go. be around. I don't know if I'll be around. <laughs> but if others are in the area and, like me, need to have that experience, you have that opportunity. Then again, I'm sure that there are theaters all over the country at least one time this year having one of those midnight shows. Very likely. All right. My number four is a film that I didn't see until a film spotting marathon, a very early film spotting marathon. And I'm going to go back to November 2006 for the discussion of this film and some feedback we got. I'm going to start with this one, though, from February 2008. This listener email comes from Jim Briggs. He was in Concord, California. I should 
give him his due, his Sam Van Hallgren nickname was Jim Stuck in the Radiance. <laughs> and this was on the occasion of us approaching our 200th episode, February 08. We were approaching our 200th episode, and we had just done our most anticipated films of the year. Some things never change, right, Josh? He writes in, I can't believe I hadn't heard of Harvey Milk until I heard Adam and Sam discuss the times of Harvey Milk. I knew about George Moscone, and I learned about the Twinkie defense in high school, but never heard a peep about Harvey Milk. When I watched the times of Harvey Milk, I remember being so moved by the footage of the candlelight march after Milk's assassination. You might say, I got a little dusty in my living room. I remember wishing I'd been there. Well, Gus Van Zandt recently shot Milk, starring Sean Penn as Harvey Milk in San Francisco, and the producers invited anyone and everyone to dress up in 70s clothes and recreate the march. So even though I wasn't born until four years after Milk's death, two friends and I were able to march down Market Street near the Castro Theater, where I met Mr. Adam Kempinar, and remember Harvey Milk. So naturally, Milk is my most anticipated film of 2008. Happy 200, guys. Jim wished us then. It is true. Had a film spotting meetup very early, maybe 06, maybe as late as 07, right in that Castro district, and I met Jim there. So now we jump back, and we've just discussed the times of Harvey Milk on the show, and Fran Mayer, very longtime listener, wrote in, Hi, guys. Very good review of Harvey Milk and especially the connection to the political situation now. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm so offended by the word San Francisco values used by the conservative media as a euphemism for what they believe is going wrong in this country. The documentary shows an American city in the phase of rapid change. But if I were to ask my friends and colleagues what it means to live in the Bay Area, what are the values? They are the very admirable values of celebration of diversity, racial, religious, sexual, political, celebration of life, and the quest for what's new and exciting. Remember, San Francisco and Silicon Valley are essentially the same. I'm proud of the San Francisco values and am awed and inspired on how this region reacted to the life and times of Harvey Milk, the later AIDS crisis, and now the assault on our way of living. I can think of no better place to raise my children. So I read those, Josh, because I'm going to synthesize them a little bit here in explaining why The Times of Harvey Milk, this doc from 84, directed by Rob Epstein, is at number four on my list. I should note Rob Epstein also directed The Celluloid Closet, which you'll find on a lot of these types of lists. Not only had I never seen The Times of Harvey Milk, which won the Oscar for Best Documentary its year, I'd never even heard of it, nor had I, like Jim, ever heard of Harvey Milk. Part of that has to do with the fact that I was an infant when Harvey Milk was campaigning and holding office, and I was barely out of diapers when he was assassinated. But I'm growing up in Iowa. The first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California, I can't imagine that was much of a conversation topic going on around me, even amongst the adults. And I found a quote on Wikipedia today as I was looking up some details. The director, Rob Epstein, he said that one of the reasons he chose the subject of Milk's life was, at the time, for those of us who lived in San Francisco, it felt like it was life-changing, that all the eyes of the world were upon us. But in fact, most of the world outside of San Francisco had no idea. It was just a really brief provincial localized current event story that the mayor and a city council member in San Francisco were killed. It didn't have much reverberation. So there you go. It, it really probably wasn't something that was reverberating all around me in the Midwest. But by 2005, when I'm doing this show, I certainly considered myself an ally for queer rights, even if that wasn't a term anyone might have used then. I remember watching the times of Harvey Milk and just thinking, how did I not how did I not know? 
And more importantly, to Fran's point, it was it was not uncommon growing up in the Midwest in the 80s, especially with the AIDS crisis beginning, to hear adults make homophobic jokes and comments about San Francisco. It was the punching bag. It was that example of what was wrong with America. Everything that could be wrong with American values, San Francisco was the emblem. I had visited San Francisco in my 20s before seeing this doc. I had formed my own opinions by that point. But seeing the Times of Harvey Milk was still hugely important for me to put human faces to this struggle and to understand it as a struggle, to truly understand it as a struggle for equality. And then, as Jim noted there, Gus Van Zandt went on to make Milk, which was one of my favorite films of 08. I think it was my number two best film of that year, actually. And if you haven't seen them both, or if you've only seen Milk, watch the doc, watch Van Zandt's film, and then you can have a new perspective, really, on what Sean Penn is doing so wonderfully in that lead performance, and also what Josh Brolin is doing as Dan White, the guy who assassinated him. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Sadly, I saw Vincent's Milk, but have not yet seen Times of Harvey Milk, and I feel like that should be reversed. (laughs) I mean, the Vincent film is good. I'm not saying that, but yeah, should definitely be the other way around. All right, my number three pick is Fireworks, and this is the film on my list that I watched the most recently. I think it was 2017 when I finally saw this, even though it's the oldest film on my list, 1947. And I'll get to what was formative and enlightening about Fireworks, but first I want to take the occasion to note the recent passing of its writer and director, Kenneth Anger, who died last month at the age of 96. Anger's probably best known outside of cinephile circles for authoring Hollywood Babylon, a supposed account of old Hollywood gossip that's full of apocryphal stories. I'm I'm sure a few true ones as well. But Anger's influence on film and his art form, that comes from the 20-plus short films that he made across the decades, starting in the 1940s. Here's our friend Matt Zoller-Seitz writing over at RogerEbert.com. I think he sums up the provocative prickly and deeply talented filmmaker and his career pretty well here. From his 1947 breakthrough Fireworks, a homoerotic fantasia of Navy sailors in a bar that's saturated in milk and blood, through his biker Nazi Jesus occult nightmare satire Scorpio Rising, haven't seen that one yet, and his shamanistic Birth of Satan chronicle Lucifer Rising, through late works like Don't Smoke That Cigarette, The Man We Want to Hang, and Mouse Heaven, Both anger and danger were always palpable, even when they were layered with humor, symbolism, analogy, social critique, and beauty for beauty's sake. That is a really good piece from Matt over at Vulture, so we will link to it in the show notes. For me, speaking to fireworks... It was it was like a direct pipeline to an id, you, you know, ego, super ego, id. This id that I personally couldn't fathom. It's this tortured reverie involving these bleary streetlights, bloody noses, bare torsos, and all of this seems to be as as Matt was kind of getting at there. It turns enticing, also abusive. Um, it, it's just. It's one of the definitive dream movies, really. And actually, Anger's voiceover in the film talks about it as, quote, the explosive pyrotechnics of a dream. It absolutely had to pave the way for someone like David Lynch. And actually, if you go through reading a lot of the obits of, of Anger, Lynch comes up 
a lot. So I'm just getting started with Kenneth Anger and late to that game, but already based on fireworks, just grateful for the rawness and the vulnerability of his filmmaking and how that's helpful in understanding his representation, at least of the LGBTQ plus experience. I'm glad you got in a mention of Kenneth Anger as we did fail to include him on the show a week or so ago when he actually passed. And it's one of those cases with me, Josh, where I'm pretty sure I've seen fireworks. And I say that because I know that I was introduced to Kenneth Anger, at least one of his films, back appropriately in an introduction to film analysis class. I'm pretty sure when we were doing a little segment on experimental avant-garde cinema. I'm sure it was fireworks we watch. I think it probably would have been Scorpio Rising. That would have been the other most likely option in that class, but it's been so long since I've seen it. That's great that you had a chance recently to see that film, and it's one I'd like to revisit. For my number three LGBTQ plus movie, formative piece of queer cinema, this is a case, Josh, where I'm going to go from a movie I saw finally in 2005, The Times of Harvey Milk, to a movie that actually came out in 2005. And I wonder if some people listening to this, especially younger listeners, are going to hear us talking about some of these titles and find it difficult to fathom that we were still having formative experiences in 2005. Um, I can say from the dinner conversation I just had with my two daughters this evening, yes, that will be happening. <laughs> <laughs> but people may not quite remember back in 2005, or maybe they were very young and weren't paying attention to pop culture at the time. But there was a clip that surfaced recently from a press tour in 2005 for Brokeback Mountain, where Heath Ledger gives this wonderfully spontaneous, eloquent response to a reporter asking how he feels about those who might say the movie is disgusting what he would say to them. You can't really imagine someone asking that question today. And I'll note that the first time I saw it pop up in my feed, you just get the very tail end of the question. And I was under the impression that the person asking the question was actually saying it was disgusting. And doing a little bit more digging, that's not quite the case. The reporter, I think, is talking about people who might say that. I've mentioned this before, and we alluded to it in the intro. Seeing the trailer for the first time for Brokeback, I'm pretty sure it was the first time I was made aware of the movie. I'm seeing it at a crowded Chicago movie theater. You've got those first 30, 40 seconds or so. It's this Western setting we've seen so many times. You've got two cowboy-looking dudes you've seen so many times. Two incredibly good-looking, virile men and Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal doing cowboy-like things until they're doing things we haven't seen cowboys do on screen before. They're they're holding each other. They're lying with each other. You see Ledger holding that blue denim shirt closely. You don't know the context of it, but you know it's something you've never seen before. A man saying, I can't quit you. People were reacting around me with snickers. People were clearly uncomfortable. I remember finding it awkward and uncomfortable and not completely because I was so much more enlightened or mature than everyone else. I wasn't. I certainly wasn't disapproving of what I saw, but it was that context. It wasn't a trailer for a movie like some of the others we're going to get to on my list. It wasn't clearly an art house film. It was about those characters in that milieu. That's what was startling. And it was uncomfortable because you just couldn't quite believe you were seeing it. If you told someone at the time that a gay cowboy movie was coming out, they would have assumed it was parody 
or satire, but either way, mostly played for laughs. And I'm not sure that there are any laughs in Brokeback Mountain. This, of course, is a moving, tragic tale. And after it, after Brokeback, the notion of being in any way uncomfortable watching a trailer for a queer romance, regardless of genre, seems utterly absurd to me. And yes, hopefully, as a culture, we've evolved. And as individuals, we've all evolved some in the past 17 years. But I think it's films like Brokeback and characters like Jack and Ennis that have largely contributed to that evolution. Yeah, it was the wideness of the exposure this film got. As you said, it was not this art house release or even this small movie with no names that somehow managed to find an audience. This was from the very start, a major star, major production. And that was absolutely unique for 2005. We could have had a good life together. But you didn't want it, Ennis. God! You don't know nothing about it. I wish I knew how to quit you. A reminder that you can always check out our complete lists at filmspotting.net slash lists. We'll have more coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey there, Film Spotting family. This is Aisha Harris. I'm one of the co-hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, as well as the author of the forthcoming book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And my pick for 2022 is probably one that I'm sure a lot of people have already chosen, but there's a reason for that. And it's, of course, everything, everywhere, all at once. I have not... That's one of our favorite pop culture critics, longtime friend of the show, Aisha Harris, with a voicemail she submitted for last year's Best of 2022 show. Aisha has joined us a couple of times for trivia spotting, actually four or five times, really an enthusiastic, fun trivia player. But we've never had her on the show as a proper guest, and we're going to remedy that next week when she's going to join us to talk about her new book, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. I know, Josh, we're excited to get our hands on physical copies. We were able to check out a digital copy of it, but we both pre-ordered it. Excited for Aisha and excited for our listeners that we're going to have her on the show. The book does hit bookstores on June 13th. She's agreed to play along with more of our shenanigans. She's going to join us for a top five inspired by her book. So far, I've only got one, maybe two options. I'm going to have to put in some more legwork here, Josh, but I like the topic in line with her book. We're thinking about doing the top five characters, movie characters that shaped us. So another formative top five. Yeah. And this is one I think Aisha threw at us, right? Because she knows the show fairly well. We suggested it. Actually, Sam threw that out there, I think. He had like four options and she said that was the one she liked the best. Oh, okay. 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 I see that. Yeah. Uh, Either way, it should be fun. I don't have a full list and I think it's going to be an interesting one to think about. We had some early conversation and we do agree. We don't want this to be characters we wanted to be. So 
no Indiana Jones for me. No yeah. Han Solo. We're not. We've done those lists. Yeah, we've done those lists. This is more uh, something like shaped us in who we eventually became, even though it's probably a very different person as that character. Something about the character could maybe still be found in us that's it today hopefully there's if, a nugget if it there's a nugget oh and hopefully it's positive hopefully it's yeah, not monstrous say, good or bad <laughs> right we'll see what happens we will see also next week we'll have results from the current deeply flawed film spotting poll question are wes anderson mount rushmore though we're asking you to just pick one best performance in a wes anderson film the options ray fines in grand budapest gene hackman and the royal tenenbaums Jason Schwartzman and Rushmore, and we had to go with Bill Murray. His face has to be up there. What movie is it for? We went with The Life Aquatic. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. I have to check in, Adam. Any any word yet at the Film Spotting mailbox about people wanting to do an Iquitos Peru meetup with me? I have not gotten anything except Werner Herzog <laughs> screaming about building an opera house. That's uh, it. All right. Well, then he and I and and my daughter will get to that. But here is a last call. Kind of crazy trip the two of us are going on to the Amazon in Peru. And we do have a day of downtime on the return trip where we'll be in the city of Iquitos. So by any chance... As we said last week, Adam's met film spotting listeners in Helsinki. I've met listeners in Oslo. We both met listeners in London on different occasions. Maybe maybe we can add Peru to the list. So let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net if you're anywhere near Iquitos on June 28. I know we don't want to beg for listeners to come to a meetup, Josh, but not every film spotting listener listens to every show. And maybe it would behoove us to look at the film spotting mailbag, see if there's some Peruvian listeners who have written in at some point over the show's history and let them know. Hit them with direct invites. I like it. All right. Sounds like it might involve a spreadsheet, but I'm in this case, I'm willing to use the tool. I did want to give a quick shout out to a listener of the show. Although this email did really make me think about, how long I've been doing this show. Aaron Onish wrote in, he said, I'm a sophomore at Northwestern University studying filmmaking. I've been listening to film spotting since I was in middle school, and your show has developed my interest in filmmaking ever since. I recently attended a screening of Bing Lu's new film, All These Sons, with a Q&A he did on campus. We haven't seen All These Sons yet. Come on, Bing Lu, hook us up. We gave you the golden brick, and it reminded me of how your show and the golden brick award has introduced me to so many exciting films I would otherwise never see. I would like to invite the film spotting team to the Evanston premiere of my movie, Mixed Signals. It's produced by Applause for a Cause, a charitable film organization producing the only feature film at Northwestern and raising money for a beneficiary at our premiere. We have worked with 826 Chai, a nonprofit for after school care promoting creativity for children. So he did invite us to the premiere. The premiere was last Friday. We weren't able to make it. It's a movie about three college seniors who discover an old TV and are suddenly swapped with characters from their favorite shows. Sounds like something we'd probably enjoy, Josh. And we do get emails like this from time to time. We're not always able to mention these types of occasions on the show. But I especially liked this one, not just because he's been listening since middle school and is making films now, but he mentioned that nonprofit group, 826 Chai. And we are occasionally here at Film Spotting looking for groups to contribute money to. We have a longtime listener named Scott in Western Kansas who every year sends us a very generous check. And all he says is, please spend part of it on giving money to whatever 
cause you would like. And he has in mind something film-related, though I know he would really allow us to do whatever he would like. And we've given to different groups over the years. I looked up this group. It's a nonprofit that teaches creative writing, tutoring, and publishing that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of Chicago youth. So we'll link to more information in our show notes at filmspotting.net. If you're curious, wanted to give that group, wanted to give Scott and Aaron a little bit of love for all the great work that they're doing. Absolutely. Congratulations, Aaron. And I think I think we need to spend more time in production meetings thinking about the middle school demographic, Adam, for the show and, and what, what would appeal to them. Although, if you're listening to this show in middle school, you're probably just fine with the content, I'm going to guess. Over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's an episode I've been waiting for. I just saw it pop up in my feed. Part one of their film criticism pairing Nicole Holof Center's Lovely and Amazing from 2001. They are pairing that with another Holof Center film from this year. My favorite so far of this year, the new You Hurt My Feelings with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. And new episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More information is at nextpicturershow.net. You Hurt My Feelings, a film I finally have had a chance to see Josh. Yeah, I saw that on the show. Very positive little blurb over on Letterboxd. I think my quick reaction to it there hopefully provoked a good top five list we'll do at some point, which would be something like best actor-director collaborations of the last couple decades or last 25 years. We've done that top five before, looking at all time, and you're talking yeah. about folks like De Niro and Scorsese, of course, but really that, that Louis Dreyfus and Holofson are one. I think they need one more film. I think they need a third, you know, to make it a trend, to make right. it something we can we can really dive into and dissect. But through these two films, enough said in your oh, feelings, they're they're on that path, and I need them to be on that path. I need at least one more from them, not just to do that list, but because I want to see it. I do think it's a very good film, and I wanted to take a moment to recommend another movie that I did plug. At the end of the show, last week or the week before, it was just opening on one screen at the time. One theater in New York had this new movie, this new documentary, Close to Vermeer. And it is now, Josh, coming here, starting at the Music Box in Chicago this weekend, and also expanding to other cities. And it's a documentary that takes you inside the process of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, putting on the largest Vermeer exhibition ever mounted really the definitive look at the Dutch master's work, including trying to assemble the most Vermeers in one place that they can. One of the things I learned from the documentary is how difficult that actually is. Not that I'm really surprised by it, but not knowing anything about any of these processes. You can imagine it's not just a case where you can say to some other museum, hey, you know those three Vermeers you have that some people schedule their lives around, I'm finally going to get to go to this museum and see those paintings. Yeah, just just let us have them for a couple months. Can you just ship them over to Amsterdam? It doesn't quite work like that. That's just one of the things you learn about this process. And one of the things you learn about Vermeer's work, he's a painter for me. Of course, I feel a little affection for him because he is a Dutch master. But I remember being in New York in January 2019 and going to the Met for the first time, and conveniently, they had a Dutch master's exhibition going on, and they had a few Vermeers. 
I repeatedly circled back to a painting called Study of a Young Woman. Had probably seen it somewhere before in a book, but had never seen it face to face. I dropped Intro to Art History, Josh, after the first week of classes my senior year as an undergrad. So I have no insights to share. I can't explain what it is, but there was something about that painting that I'm telling you, I I went back to multiple times just to stand in front of and ponder. Something about it took my breath away. And I mention that because obviously Vermeer's work is worthy enough to be the subject of many documentaries. And it's been the subject of at least one other that I've seen and can recommend called Tim's Vermeer. Art's a two-way street. Close to Vermeer understands that great art isn't just about the work itself, the craft, innovative techniques, and influence. It's about the feelings a painting provokes in the individual observing it. The director, Suzanne Reyes, she explores the alluring mysteries of Vermeer's work through the eyes of those who have devoted their lives to investigating those mysteries. And that's what what really brought me in to this film close to Vermeer, including the main curator there at the Rijksmuseum who is facing this daunting task. And some of those mysteries include, do we even know for sure which paintings are Vermeer's and which ones aren't? These are things that people speculate about with painters since the beginning of time, but now we've got technology that can hopefully help us discern the actual answer to questions like that. And there's a stunning bit of news that happens in the documentary that was actual news when it happened at the time, though I wasn't aware of it, where a group, I'll just say a group that has a huge vested interest in classifying a certain Vermeer painting as a Vermeer painting decides that they don't think it is a Vermeer. And then that, of course, has ramifications for the Rijksmuseum and its exhibition, obviously. But even then, it's not so much about the politics of it. It's about the people who are doing the evaluation and how they they process this new development. So I watched this film and instantly went to Google to look up information about it, to see when this was made in relation to the exhibit. Did I miss it? Could I get on a plane? I was just there. This exhibit was not going on at the time. I was just there over New Year's. Could I go back? Could I justify a trip? Do I have enough credit card points, Josh, to to go back to Amsterdam to see this exhibit? That's how badly I wanted to go after seeing this. And I get on, and the first thing you see on the main page of the Rijksmuseum website is, yeah, this exhibit's completely sold out. Don't bother. (laughs) Basically, they put it nicer than that, but that's what it said. And I literally just yesterday saw in the newspaper, and it popped up online in a few different places, that that exhibition officially broke records at the Rijksmuseum. It drew over 650,000 visitors in its four-month run. So quite a gathering of paintings, quite a gathering of art lovers to see it. And I do hope more people get a chance to see close to Vermeer. All right. From high art to low art, it is time for Massacre (laughs) Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene you get a chance at least to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, we, along with guest Michael Phillips, massacred this scene. Any plans for this evening? Uh, no. Perhaps a game night? You're just going to stay in, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Boring. Mm. I see. I do hope you keep me in mind for any future game nights. Well, you bet. I've always enjoyed the camaraderie of good friends. 
competing in games of chance and skill. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll do that, but um, it's nice just, just, just the two of us. Three bags of Tostito scoops, I notice. That was Jesse Plemons with Rachel McAdams and Jason Bateman in 2018's Game Night, written by John Francis Daly, Mark Perez, and Jonathan Goldstein, directed by Daly and Goldstein. That massacre was part of our top five of 2023 so far show with Michael. Why did we choose Game Night? We've got a lot of great feedback here, and that's because we got a lot of entries, Josh. A lot of people appreciate Game Night as much as we do, and this rivals entries going back to the early, early days of film spotting back when, you know, there weren't a million podcasts out there gobbling up everyone's time. And we were getting several hundred every week. This one was up there with some of our most entered ever, which was really gratifying to see Dylan in Sacramento says very easy. How can this be profitable for the film spotting company? (laughs) Yeah, we purposefully left that line off. We We just thought that would be way, way, way too easy. We also heard from Joe in Skokie, one of my favorite comedies of the decade and top tier Jesse Plemons. The only connection I can think of is that Josh was munching on Tostito scoops while off mic. Or perhaps Michael is an investor in Frito-Lay and therefore is concerned about their profits. Great pick. I should know this about you. Oftentimes when someone isn't a big sweets person, which Mm. you are not, they are a big salty snacks person. One of my former roommates at Grinnell was that way. He was way more of a pretzel and chip guy. Yeah. What about you, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. That's me. Um, Okay. Fries. I'll put fries and pizza in that category. Just it gets bad. Okay. So you might have been actually munching on Tostitos. Possibly. I'm not going to share my acting secrets. (laughs) Robert Gibbons in Kaysville, Utah says the connection is that Michael Phillips always wants to be part of Adam and Josh's movie club. But Adam and Josh are scared of him, so they only invite him on rare occasions. <laughs> well, did, I mean, he how did he you is know, Robert? To us sometimes. <laughs> Here's Ed Savoy from Philadelphia, PA. The subject of your massacre was 2018's Game Night, featuring Rachel McAdams, much and justly praised on your top five of 2023 so far show for her work in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. In addition, the directors of Game Night showed up in your later discussion of Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, in terms of being an honorable mention. I was going to say that I hope the Plemons bot gets repaired soon, but then again, he is showing up in the next Yorgos Lanthimos picture, so perhaps it only needs a very mild fine-tuning. Is that a dig at my performance? I I believe it was, but don't worry. You've got some praise coming. Mm. (laughs) Honor Among Thieves? Another movie that I just caught up with, as my letterbox followers know. Good, and right? You and Michael, you weren't wrong about that one either. Yeah. Really, Such really fun. entertaining. So of all the entries, I apologize to anyone out there who I'm failing to mention, but those were the two main connections. And it's entirely possible that the Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret connection is the only one that Sam, our producer, was thinking of. When he chose game night, I am giving him the proper credit. It wasn't you in this case. Uh, I don't remember, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, one of you chose it, maybe had that certainly as the primary connection. Then there was also the Dungeons and Dragons. Well, four listeners got a third connection to that show. You'll recall we did highlight the winners at the Cannes Film Festival and had a Cannes-related poll question. Well, Jake Meltzer in Las Vegas, Addison Alley in Salt Lake City, Rob in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and Remy Caron in Laval, Quebec, Canada, wrote in and acknowledged that Jesse Plemons plays a prominent role 
in Killers of the Flower Moon, the new one from Scorsese, which just had its rapturous reception at Cannes. How about that? Here is another comment, and I don't know if this is a critique or praise of my performance. We'll see. It comes from Trevor in Regina, Saskatchewan. The only other possible tie-in for me has to do with Josh's rigor mortis-like performance. As There's soon still as some I, praise coming. As soon as I heard him, I thought, oh no, he died. <laughs> I do want to say, I believe Josh put this in the film spotting pronunciation guide. I believe it's Regina, Saskatchewan. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Regina. Thank you, Trevor, for that note. And thank you, everyone who wrote in mentioning two of the best lines. I was going to say best lines of dialogue of the past at least 10 years, at least in terms of comedic value, Josh. But it's not even so much two best lines. It's one best line and one best line reading. The first one being the, how can that possibly be profitable for Frito-Lay, as we already said. The other one being, oh no, he died from Rachel McAdams. You really need Just her delivery. Brilliant. Oh no, he died. Devin, our friend Devin Jolly Jackboot Wombald in Long Island City, New York said, honestly, I think Josh nailed it. Oh. I'd have to watch the scene again to see if the impression is accurate, but the dead-eyed menace was there in spades, and that's what matters. I also like to think he went full method and did the scene with his new pup in hand. Give that man some Tostitos scoops. And Devin being Devin, who we all know from trivia spotting and his famous or infamous backgrounds, his handy Photoshop work, we got a Photoshop of you on Plemons' body with... A dog. It it might actually be your dog. I don't know. Oh, I have not seen this yet. There is there is a picture of Louise floating around the internet. So Devin yeah. might have grabbed that. I think he did. I, I got to take a look. It was not. I have been known to hold and try to to keep her happy during podcast recordings. I don't think film spotting has had the pleasure yet. Yet. All right. We also heard from David Germer in Asheville, North Carolina. Josh managed to suck the life out of the funniest moment in one of the funniest movies of the past decade. Well, for that, David, I hope I mispronounced your last name. Even though we've met, you've been to Ebert Interruptus. I feel terrible, but I don't because you just insulted me. So, Germer, I'm going to go with Germer. Okay. I mentioned there was praise. I forgot how much non-praise I had sprinkled in here. Here's another name I'm not sure about. Adam Hofer? I'm going to go with Hofer in Memphis, Tennessee. The sole reason I gave this movie a chance, which I'm so thankful I did, was because of hearing the profitable for Frito-Lay line come up in the film spotting funniest movie moments at the live show from that year. So now, several years after hearing that bit and discovering the joy of the movie, I need to give you all a belated thanks for the recommendation. You're welcome, Adam. Thank you to everyone, all the people who entered. We have such a brimming film spotting hat. There is no room for any Tostito scoops in the hat. Reach in, pick out this week's winner, Josh. Our winner is Dave in, and now the pronunciation thing has got me all messed up, either Amesbury or Amesbury, Massachusetts. Yeah, I was going to go with Amesbury, but we've been burned on Massachusetts pronunciations before, so who knows how they actually pronounce it. I had to look this up today. You have any You have any idea where Amesbury Mass is, Josh? I mean, it's not the biggest state, so are we, are we guessing... Boston area or West? I'm going to go West. You are incorrect. It's at the very northeastern tip of Massachusetts. Seems to be right in that little tri-state area with, oh, now I'm going to forget Maine. I think I'm terrible at geography. Maine and and New Hampshire. I I actually looked it up only about 90 minutes away from where one Sam Van Halgren grew up in Mm. New Hampshire. 
enlightening. Well, we have all learned something. Oh, we really have. And now it's probably time to move on. Congratulations, Dave. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. I'll get your address. The post office will know where to deliver your very own film spotting t-shirt or tote bag. Broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are so wrong. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre, and we have a scene, Josh, where you have bestowed upon me. I didn't ask for it, but you've bestowed upon me the honor of doing the pseudo-funny voice. Yeah, it's... I don't know if it's that funny. It's a, it's a deadpan performance like the Plemons one I did. And as we yeah. just heard, the Plemons bot is undergoing repairs. That's right. So I'm unable to to handle this. We'll, we'll see okay. how, how you do with this type of role. I am also unable to handle it. And that's just because <laughs> I'm a talentless hack. You started off, we are going to give you no hints. We don't think you'll need any. I don't think this is going to get quite as many entries as game night josh but i think we'll get a fair amount i know that there's a lot of love out there in film spotting nation yes for this film that's your that's your only hint. indeed okay are you ready yes and action look where's this going what do you want me to do there's sometimes a buggy how many drivers does a buggy have one So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for that part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That is up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now, you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. And <laughs> scene. Scene. Busted out the uh, the Owen Wilson bot a little bit, but that's maybe, okay. <laughs> maybe a little Owen. Just finally got a little bit of twang there yeah. at the very end. Yeah. Only at the very end. You you, just, you generally find your way with, with these tougher roles. Yeah. You get there. We just need to pick, you know, pages and pages of dialogue and you'll have it perfected by the end. There you go. If you know what film. We just massacred. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 19th. We will select the winner randomly from all of those correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. You do anything for me? Anything. No way. You said anything, though. Girl has to draw the line somewhere. I want to change you to a man. Why? It's a secret. Would you like me better that way, Jimmy? Yes. And you wouldn't leave me? No. You promise? I promise. We get back into our Pride Top 5 LGBTQ plus movies with a clip from The Crying Game, 1992, and my number two pick on my list now I want to note here, I have not revisited The Crying Game in many, many years. So I really can't say how it might be received right now, given where we're at 
in the conversation about trans identity. But what I can tell you is that at the time, especially for me, this was absolutely an enlightening experience. Sam, our producer, said something that was really helpful while we were conversing about this list in uh, in Slack. And he was actually talking about Sean Baker's Tangerine, a movie we all love. And he said, you know, Tangerine, just spending time with those characters, Sam said, made the whole concept of the trans experience less of a mystery. And that was very helpful for me in thinking about how to describe these movies that did register, help orient me in thinking about these experiences that maybe I wasn't so familiar with. So when it comes to the crime game, if you go back to 92, it wasn't just me who was captivated by this film. This was a breakout picture for its subject matter. We're talking to your points earlier about Brokeback Mountain, Adam. This is what, 12, 13 years earlier than Brokeback Mountain. Mm -hmm. And the crime game got six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It did win an Oscar for Neil Jordan's screenplay. Jordan was the director here. He would go on to make Interview with the Vampire, The End of the Affair, and, and other films. Another nomination went to Jay Davidson in the Best Supporting Actor category. Davidson plays Dill, the lover of a British soldier who's played by Forrest Whitaker. The soldier has been captured by an IRA faction. Now, one of the IRA soldiers who captured him, played by Stephen Ray, eventually connects with Dill later in the picture. They form a romantic attachment. And this is before the soldier realizes and actually doesn't realize until Dill reveals it to him that she's a transgender woman. So a lot of complications ensue from there. And again, I can't speak to how the film would play today or be received by a trans audience in particular. Davidson, though, who was working in fashion before the film, it's an incredible performance. It did make my list of the top five performances by non-professionals that we did way back in 2014. And talking about the film there for that list, I noted how it subversively forced certain audiences to consider questions of sexual identity, gender identity, by sneaking them into this this political thriller, essentially. I know that's what the movie did for me. It got me starting to think more intentionally and thoughtfully about such things. Sure, I should have been ready anyway, but The Crying Game for me was an essential early nudge. I had my own revelations around that time, 92, 93, with a movie that came out just a year before The Crying Game, 1991, Gus Van Zandt. Again, we'll mention him here, and it's my own private Idaho. I know I've said this, but you have to keep in mind that I'm growing up in a very small Iowa town, about 9,000 people. I didn't know anyone who was out of the closet. And would I now look back on it and say that general homophobia was the norm? Yeah, absolutely it was. The portrayal of gay men that my friends and I grew up with, I was thinking about this and trying to see if I could come up with any other faces and characters from movies, but if I had to pinpoint one, it would absolutely be Lamar Luttrell from Revenge of the Nerds. Larry B. Scott as Lamar Luttrell, who on one hand, was this stereotypically gay character, extremely effeminate. And there's a scene, I could point to so many, but there's a scene in the nerds frat house where he's early in the morning doing aerobics to women on TV and he's wearing a woman's leotard and tights. And of course, most of the humor is based on us laughing at all of these characters, but especially him. On the other hand, the movie is ultimately about the triumph of these outcasts. And there weren't many portrayals of gay men in pop culture, period, much less gay black men. 
So this is another case where I did just a little bit of digging and didn't find much, but I have to figure, I hope to hear from some people out there listening to this who might have a perspective on it. I have to imagine, Josh, there's a complicated, not just problematic, but complicated legacy with that character and that performance as we look back on it now, 40 years later. The point here is, of course, not that there's anything wrong with being effeminate. It's that it was monolithic. (laughs) That's all I saw. I'm not sure at age nine or 10, I understood that you could be gay as a man and be any other way. That is how ubiquitous that type of gay character was. And I had nothing to counter it. I had nothing to counter it with. It's kind of sad that it took almost 10 more years for it to happen. But I really think the first challenge to that ridiculous perception was my own private Idaho. I think it's the first Van Zandt I saw. I remember the first Van Zandt I saw in the theater was To Die For in 1995. I didn't see Drugstore Cowboy in 89 or My Own Private Idaho in theaters when it came out in 91. That would have been just before I was really getting into movies. It really happened around 92. And so somewhere in those next two years as I was getting into what I was discovering was art house cinema, independent cinema, and some of these auteurs, that's when I went back and saw my own private Idaho and drugstore cowboy. You've got these two characters in Scott and Mike, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, who are male prostitutes in Portland. They don't present anything like Lamar Luttrell. And what young, red-blooded, straight American male didn't want to look like and be like River Phoenix or, or Keanu Reeves at the time? Once you you get a little more distance and hopefully some wisdom, like Angelica Jade Bastien has, you see it as more nuanced. We did our top five Keanu Reeves scenes back in 2016. She had just published a piece for RogerEbert.com all about the glory of Keanu Reeves. I think she called it the grace of Keanu Reeves. And when we did our top five, I, I invoked a line from her story. She talked about the crossroads, Keanu at the crossroads of virile and vulnerable. She said, I found myself attracted to Keanu's presence because of the way he marries typically masculine and feminine qualities. He's both intense and vulnerable, kind and tough, honest and mysterious. So on that list, I reference that and I reference this scene that I'm going to mention here, the campfire scene from my own private Idaho. It was my number two scene of Keanu Reeves, even though it might be seen as more of a showcase for River Phoenix. He does more of the talking, but I really think the strength of the scene comes from both of them. What do I mean to you? What do you mean to me? Mike, you're my best friend. I know, man. I know I'm not, I know I'm your friend. We're good friends, and it's good to be, you know, good friends. That's a good thing. So? So I just... That's okay. We can be friends. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, Josh, but in looking for the clip, I came across some comments that said that supposedly Phoenix actually wrote this bit, that most of it, if not all of it, was improvised by him earlier, and then they wrote it, or he did it live that day when they were rolling, but supposedly it wasn't in the original script. Phoenix improvised this entire scene. And it was a crucial scene for me here again as this pretty sheltered straight guy to hear Mike express those feelings and for me to feel the longing to really feel it and understand it, the longing that he's expressing. And I also now think about 
of course, how that scene must have resonated for queer men and women at the time. I know you are supposed to never look at the comments, especially on YouTube. But when you go to this scene, and we'll link to it on our top five list page, you can see it and you can read them. One commenter said, this scene is synonymous with a lot of young gay men. The vocalization of these feelings, it's so heavy on the heart. And someone responded and said, Greg, you nailed it with this comment. There is a heartbreaking longing that a lot of young gay guys have that they feel they can't speak about out loud. How many gay guys have wanted to have that same conversation with someone they care about, even though they know it won't be reciprocated? just to say it before they burst. This was the first movie I thought of for this list because it was one of those films that had such an impact on me at that at that age. Again, I am sort of embarrassed to admit that I was probably about 19 when I saw it and it felt like a discovery, but that's what it was. That description of of feeling something from a movie like this fits perfectly with my reasoning for the movie I have at number one, which is one that's already been on your list, but it's Brokeback Mountain. And it probably seems too recent of a film for this list because it came out in 2005. But as I told my daughters over dinner tonight, Adam, to your earlier point, a lot has changed in the last 18 years or so in the cultural experience at large, certainly in my own personal understanding of the LGBTQ plus experience. And yeah, Brokeback is probably the most important marker for me on that journey. Now in 2005, for me at least, Ang Lee's Modern Cowboy Romance was much like The Crying Game. I think a movie that pinned me down and made me give a more holistic consideration to something that I guess at that point was more of an intellectual concept for me, just similar to you, didn't have this in my day-to-day life. So just trying to wrap my mind around it intellectually. And here, this was a movie that made me feel it, made me feel what some of these emotions involved might be. Obviously, it's the adaptation of Annie Prue's short story. You covered it. Pair of cowboys, Jake Gyllenhaal and Lee Heath Ledger in the movie, who first meet in 1963 in Wyoming and then are kept apart the rest of their lives kept apart by prejudice, kept apart by societal pressure, kept apart by their own misplaced shame is a huge element of this film. I maybe understood all those things in an intellectual level before Brokeback Mountain. Someone could explain them to me, but watching the movie is when I felt them. It made me understand the gay experience as more than a physical experience. This I know it sounds ridiculous, but Mm -hmm. for me, like early on, I just thought of it as a physical thing. Here in this movie, it's deeply emotional. It's deeply psychological. So sad but true, but that's probably where I was in 2005. Another movie, really glad that I had it to help move me along. So for my number one, we're going to go back in time in terms of its release to 1975, but move forward from my own private Idaho as far as when I finally saw the movie though I'm pretty sure it was within the same year, maybe two at the most, because again, this is a time when I'm really starting to get into film and you're not only discovering art house classics and independent features, but you're learning about guys who you already are familiar with, but you're learning more about guys like Al Pacino. You're learning about John Cazale. You're learning about directors, heavyweights like Sidney Lamette. The film is Dog Day Afternoon. And yes, Close watchers of the film spotting Pantheon know that it shouldn't technically be eligible. It's in the Pantheon, but I don't think we've ever talked about Dog Day Afternoon on the show. We've definitely never talked about 
the scene or any of the scenes I'm going to reference in any detail before. And I just think it's too important to not be on this list. By the time I saw it at that age, again, 18, 19, yes, I had come across portrayals of transgender characters before. I mentioned with my number five, Roberta Muldoon from The World According to Garp. They were all, except that one, Josh, sort of like Lamar Luttrell in that they were stereotypically big and flamboyant characters. And they were often the objects of derision or humor. So to get halfway through this intense bank hostage movie, one that does feel very testosterone-fueled and macho, even if Pacino and John Cazales, their robbers don't fit the traditional Hollywood mold, to discover that Pacino's Sonny is robbing the bank so he can pay for his lover's sex reassignment operation, that was startling. Even more startling was Chris Sarandon's performance and the reaction of the other characters who are all cops. And I just want to quickly establish some terms because it can get confusing. She, Sarandon's character, is still using her given male name, Leon, and Sonny refers to her with male pronouns, but also calls Leon his wife. The police are hoping that Leon is going to talk some sense into Sonny and help settle this situation, help defuse it somehow. And when we meet her, the cops have pulled her out of a psychiatric hospital where she's getting treatment following trying to kill herself. Well, I, 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 I couldn't explain the things I did. So I went to a psychiatrist who told me that I was a woman trapped in a man's body. Well, so right away, Sonny wanted to get me money for the sex change operation. But where was he going to get it? $2,500? Oh, my God, he was in hock up to his ears already. He needed the money for the operation for you? It drove him crazy. He, uh, he would fly into these rages. And I got more depressed than ever. I knew I'd never get my operation. So I, uh, I tried to kill myself. I took about a half a pound of pills. Blues, reds, yellows, screamers, uppers, downers, you name it. I came across this interview with Sarandon, I think it was for Yahoo Movies, back in 2015, marking the movie's 40th anniversary. And it says that the director, Lamette, made it clear that Leon should not be a Hollywood caricature. Sidney took me aside, Sarandon says, and said, Chrissy, a little less Blanche Dubois, a little more Queen's housewife. And the light bulb went off immediately. So the next time I did it, that's the Leon you see basically on screen. And that line you get, trying to imagine what audiences in 1975, what it was like for them to see that character say, I went to the psychiatrist who explained to me I was a woman in a man's body. That had to be a first for most of the people watching it. And the piece even acknowledges that Srandon's character seems like a trailblazer, a sympathetic and complex portrayal of a trans woman trying to come to grips with her identity. When Leon says that, you see and hear one cop, only one cop in the background, there's probably 12 to 15, who snickers. Otherwise, Charles Durning, who's the lead detective, and everyone else there, they just process it. There are some looks at the other cops. Surely this is the first time these men had heard a line like that as well. And I'm not going to suggest, Josh, that Lumet, I don't know, or anyone else involved with this film wants us to believe that all of these officers are anachronistically tolerant, that there's not a bigot among them except for the guy who's laughing maybe. Nor am I saying that Lumet was trying to make some sort of political statement. Maybe he was. 
I haven't read his book, Making Movies, in a really long time. I don't know if he talks about it. But he certainly understood dramatically how important it was for us to understand that there was more to Sonny than this disastrous robbery suggested. And no matter how fractured the relationship between Sonny and Leon seems to be, their feelings for each other are real. And we had to see the police as something more than simply antagonistic too. Even if all they want is for the hostage situation to end, the only hope they have of doing that is to understand who Sonny is and what he wants. And they're trying to do that there in that scene. I look back on it and I see Dog Day Afternoon normalizing behavior and feelings that that at best at the time were taboo and it at worst forbidden. And I remember seeing that for the first time, even in college, thinking I was so much more enlightened and worldly wise at this point and feeling like this was this was groundbreaking. This was doing something that I really couldn't believe. And it was just a matter of of taking these characters for who they are as people and for the real emotions they're feeling and what they're experiencing. Well, and, and yeah, and as you're getting at, like they could have jettisoned this whole element yes. from the story that the the real life story that this was based on, but their choice to keep it in there and give it significant screen time says volumes. Those are our top five formative LGBTQ plus movies. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Any other titles you had to omit you want to touch on, Josh? Oh, honorable mentions I considered. Boy, I had an experience with pink flamingos. I think a lot of people have. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I'm still done processing that, but did consider it for this list. And then Claire Denise Beautravai is also one that helped me see things through another person's eyes, I guess I would say, in an incredibly powerful way. I certainly thought about a movie you mentioned, Tangerine, from Sean Baker. Another documentary, How to Survive a Plague, a film from five to seven years ago that really looks back on the genesis of the organization ACT UP and all the activism around the early days of the AIDS crisis. Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Bertolucci's The Conformist, Isaac Julian, Young Soul Rebel is a really interesting film I saw when I was studying British film around the time of Thatcherism. And another one from that period, Stephen Frears, a Daniel Day-Lewis film called My Beautiful Laundrette. Those are all movies I considered. We are sure you have some titles that you'd like to share. Again, you can send your picks or any other feedback you have to feedback at filmspotting.net. Julie, comme ça, tout le temps sans t'arrêter, tout à fait comme ton père. Oui, je sais, tu m'as déjà dit ça. Mon père, comment tu l'as rencontré? Pourquoi tu me demandes ça juste maintenant? Je venais de lire le mot miracle et je pensais à Tante Fernande qui disait toujours qu'elle avait rencontré Jack par miracle. Oui. A clip there from The Greatest Film Ever Made, according to the 2022 Sight and Sound Critics Poll. Chantel Ackerman's Jean Dielman. Quick, give me the full title, Josh. <laughs> oh, I need to prep. I mean, talk about massacre theater. <laughs> that that just came to me to put you on the spot, and I I assume that's hours of the reaction I'd get. That one requires. Dealman was a huge blind spot for both of us until 2020, when we did an overlooked auteurs marathon, and that marathon paid off big when Sight and Sound dropped that list last fall. Not only did we talk about Ackerman's Dealman, but Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, Barbara Loden's Wanda. Maya Darren's Meshes in the Afternoon, Vera Chitlova's Daisies, those were all on that sight and sound list. And Ackerman's News from Home, which very much informed 
mm-hmm. our viewing of one of the titles in this marathon. Yeah, seven from 76 series. News from Home was part of that. That's the right. The Sight and Sound list also inspired our current marathon made up of blind spots from that top 100 list. We close things out with Edward Yang's 1991 film, A Brighter Summer Day, last week on the show. And it is time now to put the official bow on the marathon with our awards. And as I said earlier, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make when it comes to these marathons, there's usually one movie that does stand out for me above all the rest, a pretty clear best picture, or I'm debating maybe two options. And right up until the last minute today, Josh, I was going back and forth on, I think, four of these titles. I'd really only ruled out two of them. Understandable. I did have a clearer winner, but I think that's only because of my prior familiarity with this filmmaker. But yeah, totally get it having to struggle among at least half of these, if not more, for a best picture choice. That little comment there gave a hint, I think, maybe that we ended up in the same place with that best picture pick. We will find out. Our lineup for this marathon leading up to A Brighter Summer Day was Kenji Mizuguchi's Sancho the Bailiff, Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life, Rainer Werner Fassbender's Ali Furitz the Soul, Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror, and Chris Marker's San Soleil, the only documentary in the group. We do have some unfinished business in that we can't launch into our picks until we decide what award we're handing out. Some great suggestions came in. We were soliciting ideas. These always come from listeners. What do we call these Sight and Sound Marathon Awards? And we didn't decide them off air, so I'm going to hit you with them. I'm going to hit you with the best ones we got from listeners. We're going to decide live what these awards should be called. You Let's game? do it. Okay. Sam pointed out that we followed up Sans Soleil, which means sunless, with a brighter summer day. And we made no mention of the poetry of that. And he said that was a fail. So I said, well, maybe we should call it then the sunspots. Okay. I don't think that's one of the best ideas. I'm throwing it out there. We got this. I think this is a really clever one. Andy Bucati. He's in KC. He said we should call them the BFIs, the best in foreign immersion, since it covered a wide swath of revered world cinema with six directors from five different countries, France, Taiwan, Russia, Japan, and Germany times two. Andy notes that Cirque, of course, was working in and about the U.S., but was himself German. And of course, Sight and Sound is published by the British Film Institute, a country not represented in this marathon. The BFIs. Okay, that, I mean, yeah, read the rest, but I was actually trying to come up with something related to that and didn't hit upon it. So I think Andy's got it. But yeah, let's hear what else you have. Okay, there's a few more, though. Rory Dunn, the Sight and Sound Awards. How about the scene in Herds? (laughs) Okay. Taylor Cole says the rear view mirrors since they help fill in blind spots Ooh. and you watched mirror. Okay. Edwin, Edwin R. Nodden commenting on how many of the films made us weep the tissues mm. at the movie vampire on Twitter said, what about the cannons? I like that yep, too. That's These good. are all canonical films. Stephen Koch on Twitter said the snobbies meant in the best way (laughs) and maybe one not meant in the best way. One listener on Twitter, Michael Fizikas, just called it homework. Oh boy. (laughs) But our final option here for me, it's really between this and the BFIs. Zeph Wagner said the dealmans. And maybe we should just go with the dealmans, the movie that ultimately topped that sight and sound list. Josh, I'm going to give you a lot of credence here to go with the one that you feel the most strongly about. Which one is it? I mean, love any attention given to Jean Dielman, but you know, that could change 
with the next vote. So um, I don't know if that's as longstanding of a title okay. as we look for in these marathons. You know, the, these marathons that will stand the test of time and people will look back on 50, 100 years from now. Homework, funny, funny, Michael, but that's not going to help the, the <laughs> no. back catalog, the archive downloads with that title. Snobby's similar, quite amusing. Do like the canons. The tissues has a certain poetry to it. Rear view mirrors, very clever, might be giving one title a little too much attention. Perhaps that's the way these awards are going to go. We'll see. But maybe that's holding that one back. The scene and the herds is fun from Rory, but I really do like Andy's The BFIs. Yeah, I'm totally good with that. I think The BFIs is the way to go as well. I do have to also throw in, though, that Keith Hook Up the Doll Mosier in Allentown, PA, said, you already do best scene. So we didn't have a name suggestion, but a category suggestion. And we didn't get to this in time. Otherwise, we probably should have done it. He said, you already do best scene. Call it best sight and add a best sound category Ooh, to discuss the best use of score or maybe the best line. I like that idea. Yeah. But sorry, Keith, we missed it. Maybe we'll revisit this topic at some point. Let's get into our categories. We start with one of the categories we always do in these awards, no matter what the subject is, best supporting performance. The options I'm going to give you, Josh, we'll see if you go off the board and surprise me. From Sancho the Bailiff, Kanuyo Tanaka as Tamaki, Imitation of Life, we have three, John Gavin, Susan Koner as Sarah Jane, age 18, Juanita Moore as Annie Johnson. Mirror, you've got the young Ignat, Ignat Daniltsev, A Brighter Summer Day, Lisa Yang, who plays Ming, Kuo Chu Cheng, who plays the father, Elaine Jin, the mother, or you talked about Cat, Chison Wong as Cat in that Edward Yang film. Who's your pick? Yeah, it's Cat. And I'm going to make the case that this isn't just a cute kid performance because it certainly starts that way. This is Sir's pipsqueak friend, the main character, Sir. He's a good foot shorter than Sir is. And I don't think we ever know if that's just, you know, kids at that age are growing, some are growing faster than others, or is he from a younger grade? Has um, Sir been held back? We know that he's been struggling. At any rate, they make a comic pairing, but together they're really good in terms of the friendship dynamic. And also this through line, we mentioned it, but we didn't spend a lot of time on it, Adam, of Elvis songs throughout the film, how huge that was for the youth culture Interestingly, you know, this Taiwanese youth culture just glomming on to Elvis at the time. And Kat comes on stage. There's this teen band that plays Elvis covers. And Kat comes on stage to sing the falsetto parts just beautifully, but also very funnily. He has to stand on a box to reach the mic. It's not just a stunt, though. It's part of forming his own identity. We see him later recording himself at home singing. He is very serious about this. So I think that Wong's performance isn't just comic relief, but it's it shows us another crucial member of this community. Okay, I wanted all of that. He's just my runner-up, actually. 
<laughs> you just pulled an atom. You never do that. I know. I got so excited about Cat because that's where you left off. Um, it was between him and then this probably won't come as a surprise if you remember our review. It is Susan Koner, an imitation of life as the the teen Sarah Jane, the daughter of Juanita Moore's Annie, who can pass as white. And that is just one layer of her similar to Cat and all the teen characters in A Brighter Summer Day, her trying to establish her own identity. I did touch on in our review how, you know, I like Lana Turner in the lead here, but I would have loved to have seen her contemporary Joan Crawford devour this part. And I saw some of Crawford's ferociousness in Koner as she bitterly struggles to establish this identity, especially growing up alongside Susie, the teen Susie played by Sandra D, who is the daughter of the Turner character. You know, they're both privileged, well off, but Susie is clearly preferred. And that is part of the tension that fuels Sarah Jane. In response, she pulls off some pretty evil stuff, but we kind of always understand it. Yeah. There's a line she gives. I forget if we touched on this, but she tells Susie, your mother doesn't own me. And that is just like carries so many cultural reverberations and historical implications. And the way she throws that at her, getting right to the heart of the matter, there's a real vivacity to that performance that brings imitation of life to life. It's a vibrant film in a lot of ways. It's a very emotional film, Mm -hmm. but there's a degree of volatility that Koner brings to it that I think is essential. You were there tonight. Why can't you leave me alone? I tried, Sarah Jane. You'll never know how hard I tried. Well, might as well pack. Look, baby, I suppose you've been to the boss. Lost me my job, my friends, I've been no place. I didn't come to bother you. Well, you won't. Not ever again. Spoil things for me here and I'll just go somewhere else and I'll keep on going until you're so tired. Baby, I am tired. I'm as tired as I ever want to be. You mind if I sit down? Yes, I do. All very well said. Can't argue with it, though I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. It's definitely between mother and daughter for me and definitely between these two performances that were both Oscar nominated that year. Susan Koner, I think about so many moments. You touched on a few of them, but talk about the tissues and needing some at the end. I didn't mean it, Mama. That line and that line reading one that has really stuck with me from the early days of this marathon when we watched Imitation of Life. It was the second film we got to, but I've got to go with Juanita Moore as Annie Johnson. Mm-hmm. That that fierce dignity and individualism that comes through in every moment, despite the fact that she spent almost her entire life, it would seem, serving either her daughter or someone else, like the Laura Meredith character played by Lana Turner. And before her, it was another white woman like her and she never reveals even in the moments where she's arguing with sarah jane or she knows information that sarah jane doesn't and it's so tempting to make her aware of that information she never reveals an ounce of self-pity or she never wants to do anything that would make it seem as though that's what she is seeking. So it was tough to choose between them, but I'm going to go with Juanita Moore. Yeah, she's great too. And and the thing for me that really elevated that performance beyond this saintly role it could have been, I think I mentioned this, are the sly little digs or comments she makes mm-hmm. very politely here and there. And it it's just enough to make you realize 
she may be not acting on everything she sees and understands, but she sees and understands it all. Yeah, well said. We could go with Lana Turner as Laura Meredith for best lead performance or from Sancho the Bailiff, Zushio and Anju, Yoshiaki Hanayagi and Kyoko Kagawa. From Ali Firitz the Soul, Brigitte Mira as Emmy or that title character El Hedi Ben Salem. From Mirror, Margarita Terakova. She plays both Natalia and the mother, Marusia, a dual performance. I suppose you could throw in Sansoleil, the narrator, the voice we heard, Florence DeLay, or from a writer summer day, Shouser, played by Zheng Zhen. Where did you go? I'll be brief on my runner-up. It is Brigitte Mira from Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. I think I talked about the way she manages. Mira manages to break from the aesthetic constrictions that have been purposely placed there by Rainer Werner Fassbinder. So that she's she's able to give a naturalistic performance amidst this tightly formalized film we otherwise get. She's really great. But yeah, the winner here, we both... I'm sure you're going to go this direction. I'll be curious. I'll be surprised if you go somewhere else. Yes. But what a discovery Margarita Tarakova was in Mirror. Just stunning. Similar to Mira, actually, in Ali, in that she is serving the director's strict aesthetic restraints, but also creating this fully rounded human being. I don't want to say despite them, but around them. So, you know, she's, she's posing in these tableaus that Tarkovsky is known for, I can still picture that image of her washing her hair in the basin where it just spreads across the water. And of course, we get that recurring Tarkovsky motif where she's levitating. But how about all the feeling and passion she brings to both of the parts she plays, mm-hmm. you know, both both the mother of the narrator when he was a young child and then the narrator's ex-wife when he's an adult. So multi-layered a performance that registers, that works in different registers as well. It's incredible. She's incredible and a true discovery. Yeah, this was a no-brainer, even though I did give a lot of thought to Lana Turner, who I like more than you in Imitation of Life. And I get what you're saying about Joan Crawford. You can almost never go wrong putting Joan Crawford in anything. But I don't remember the word you exact used. Do you remember how you described Joan Crawford? What you were maybe hoping for more <sighs> maybe of? Maybe ferocious, something yeah, like ferocious. that. Yeah, that's, ferocious. That's what it was. And I get that, but I like the fact that Lana Turner doles out the ferociousness in only a couple of moments. And I think it stands out even more because she's otherwise been such a sort of by-the-book, pristine, innocent type character. So those moments where where we do see some of that ferociousness, they're really heightened. I love that performance, but not enough to overtake Terracova. You mentioned the the scene with her hair, but honestly, it's a couple shots in particular, a couple moments, but her mournful but defiant face, that's the single image I'll never forget from this marathon. When you ask me about this marathon, I will see Terracova's face. Looking into the camera, which she yep. does looking more than into the once, camera, right? I yep. believe exactly. Yeah. So my choice is Terakova as well. She gets the BFI. Now we do try to come up with a unique category that ties into the marathon specifically. Couldn't apply to any other marathon we do. You had a few good ideas, and I like the way you ultimately named this one. And maybe you can describe it. We're calling it the "Oh, I get it" moment. Yeah, I think if you look at what we were trying to do at the outset is reckon with some all-time greats, canonical films we had never seen, 
largely considered masterpieces. So you go into a movie like this and you're fairly certain you're going to appreciate it on some level, right? But are you going to have that moment where it's like, oh, this is why it's on the list. This is Mm -hmm. why it's so high. This is why I've always felt terrible about not having seen it. Is there a crystallizing moment? Maybe it's something like what you just described, those close-ups of Terracova. But yeah, we wanted to at least think about giving an award that captured that experience. Because I think we had it, if not with all of these films, with most of them. Yeah, that's really what you're describing. It was hard to choose because all of these films were very good to incredibly great. There was no low point really in this marathon. So they all had at least one moment like that, or they wouldn't be so good and they wouldn't probably be on a list like the Sight and Sound Top 100. So how did you narrow it down? What did you end up picking? It's similar to your comment about closing your eyes, you know, is is just doing that and saying, what comes to mind when you think back on this marathon? And I think it speaks to the quality of the marathon, but also the quality of this particular film that my runner up comes from the first movie we saw, Sancho the Bailiff. And we spent time on this, so I won't go into it in detail, but that beautifully, sorrowfully composed image of the sister Anju played by Kyoko Kagawa walking into the water and the way he uses the trees to frame it allows us to see exactly what we need to see for that crucial moment. That was my runner up, but there is an image from mirror that we spent a lot of time on. It's recurring. It's a motif. So you could pick different points. We spent a lot of time talking about the mysterious wind when the man is in the field walking and it rushes over all the greenery past him and he pauses and turns back to the camera to register it. It could be that. But I think, honestly, if I do that, close your eyes, it's the other shots of just the forest and the wind comes rushing in. I don't I don't think I want a person in it if I'm thinking about the, oh, I get it moment from Tarkovsky, hmm. from this marathon and from Mirror. I want that moment where something mysterious from another realm, some force is entering this mundane, familiar place. And that's what the mysterious wind does for me in Mirror. For my runner-up, I'm going to go back to Imitation of Life. And we get, in one of these examples, you get that ferociousness I was talking about. Steve and Susie, in Imitation of Life, that's the John Gavin character, the love interest, the unrequited love interest. There's always something, work, mainly ambition, keeping them apart. It is, after all, a melodrama. Steve and Susie each tell Laura to stop acting. I spent a good amount of time in our review talking about both of those scenes, but until today, I hadn't actually made the connection, Josh, that the moment we get near the end where we get this wonderful close-up, and it, for me, almost is a meta moment where Cirque understands that he is framing it, he is framing Lana Turner in close-up, allowing her character, Laura Meredith, to have this sort of triumphant moment of sacrifice where she tells her daughter, well, if you love him, I won't stand in the way. And the daughter says, stop acting, mother. Well, earlier, when we finally get that moment of, of real fracture between her and Steve, again, I love the lighting, how dramatic it is when we get this empowered Laura saying to Steve, you can't tell me not to go to this audition. 
the fact that you love me isn't enough. I'm going. I'm going to try to get this part. And he says to her, I really didn't catch it until today. He actually says to her the exact same two words. He says <laughs> to stop acting. So I love not only the symmetry there, but I do love everything about how Cirque presents those scenes visually and how powerful they are. But for me, it's going to be another moment. My winner is going to be another moment from Sancho the Bailiff. So hard to not choose the scene you did. And that was in contention for my overall best scene, that that sacrifice scene from Anju and the water from Sancho. But the moment where in that first movie we were watching, I said, okay, I sort of get the epic sweep of this. I'm getting, I think, why this is such a revered film. And then I hear Anju and Zushio. I see those two characters, the children, hearing their mother's mm -hmm. song. Zushio's escape. Mizuguchi giving us a bit of magical realism that he is nevertheless grounded earlier in the film in a moment where those two kids are away in the woods or among the trees away from their mother and she calls to them and they come back to her now they're out there again free in the wilderness and they hear her voice she may be actually singing to them in that moment but there's no way that that voice is actually reaching where they are but they hear it and it's what changes everything and leads to Andrew's sacrifice and zushio getting away from their servitude that moment was the one where i said okay I, I get it now. I get literally I said I get it. I know I know what level Mizuguchi is operating mm -hmm. on here, and this marathon's gonna be a special one. That all sets up our pick for overall best scene. Best scene or moment from this sight and sound marathon. The BFI goes to. For me, I have a runner-up and a winner again. The runner-up is Goodbye, Miss Linda from Imitation of Life. Late in the film where Sarah Jane, her mother has come to visit her and Sarah Jane is pretending that her mother was her nanny when she was growing up and they pretend play this to not blow Sarah Jane's cover. Just so tragic. Best scene though, it's one we didn't talk about at all when we reviewed A Brighter Summer Day. I'm really glad this gives me an opportunity to, to go into it. We had such a good long discussion and I just thought, you know what? I'm going to save this. I'm going to save this because I think when it comes to the marathon, this is going to stand out to me. This is what I'm going to call the killer or savior scene where Sir is out on the streets late one night and he comes across the local grocery store owner who's walking home drunk. Now this guy has had some confrontations with Sir's family. There's tension mm -hmm. between them and Sir's just watching him. As in so much of this film, we can't quite tell what he's thinking, right? He's keeping things to himself. But then we see the grocery store owner fall to his knees. And what does Sir do? He picks up what appears to be a brick and just stands a little bit away, the brick hole, you know, hanging the brick down by his waist. And you just, you know, this kid is on the, uh, the razor's edge of ruining his life by making the wrong choice. And you just kind of gasp, what is going to happen here? Well, the grocery store owner, then he falls down. I, f I forget the exact sequence of events. I think he falls down and he rolls into this ditch where there is water and passes out. And instead, sir runs to save him, pulls him out of the water and calls for help. And for me, it just emphasized this thin line of those kids' lives, particularly at that age, how one impulse, either way, 
could possibly set the tone for their whole life. And of course, as we come to know by the end of the film, it still does kind of go down that way mm-hmm. in the bad way for Sir. But I love how Yang gives us this moment to show, I don't know, like this isn't a bad kid, you know, like he, he has these impulses too, and it is just all on that razor's edge. And one thing that you feel watching that scene play out is even if he does make the right choice, as he ultimately does, he might still get blamed. What if this Mm. guy dies? And the guy in the moment, I was watching it the whole time, not so much worried about him actually harming the guy, but actually the guy dying despite Sir helping him. Oh, yeah. And it being perceived, or he survives, but he perceives him as trying to hurt him. And whatever way this finally plays out, Sir ends up getting the blame for hurting him or, or killing him. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and, and I think that's probably why Yang has the little button on the scene where I forget if he's technically a police officer, but Sir does call someone Mm -hmm. who comes to help pull him out, who could then verify the story. So I think it's probably speaking exactly to your concern, right? Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. So my runner up for best scene would have been that and you sacrifice scene, except I really thought it was important to get something in here because otherwise it's not going to be mentioned. I thought it was important to get a scene from Ali Firit's The Soul in here. That Fassbender film is one I considered for best picture. So spoilers, it didn't win it. But it's a moment I talked about a lot in our review. And it's people always say, but and nothing ever changes. This is that first night the film was opened on these two characters that There's really no world. This certainly isn't the world that they inhabit where these two characters should fall in love with each other or even should be spending any time together. It's taboo. It's taboo for him to even be in her apartment building, much less her actual apartment. He walks her back to her place. There are no romantic designs by either of them at this point, but they're standing there in that lobby, if you will, the foyer to their apartment building. And She invites him up. Why don't you come up for a while? I'll make us coffee and maybe the rain will stop. And he says, I'd like to, but, and she says that line, people always say, but, and nothing ever changes. And the camera, before she's done with that line, Fassbender has the camera just start to move towards the stairs. It really is as if to say, no, you want to go. It's okay. I'm going to welcome, I'm going to welcome you upstairs. It's going to be okay. I love that subtle, but profound camera shift by Fassbender there. But that line itself too, Josh, if you think about it, Fear Eats the Soul is a movie so grounded in this reality and the everyday harshness of it and all of the obstacles they're trying to overcome as a couple, as individuals. And when she says, people always say, but, and nothing ever changes, it's sort of like she's she's piercing that that reality and saying, no, let's go ahead. We can go ahead and live in the fantasy. Let's try it. Let's let's do what we're not supposed to do for this moment. And this film has a few different moments like that, that that elevate it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great moment. And I like thinking about the movie that way as this intentional effort to just push beyond the societal expectations and Mm -hmm. boundaries and create a new world independent of them. That that reframes a lot of what takes place within the film. And of course. I said all that and made that impassioned case, but that too is just my runner up. You stole it. The best scene from the marathon, the moment I kept coming back to is from Mirror. 
It's the wind shivering through the leaves and trees. And okay. I use that word. I use that word shiver because it it sent shivers through me watching it. And the whole film feels kind of like a ghost story. And there's something ghostly about that moment. It really does chill you watching it. And as I joke during our conversation, I'm picking it also because I sort of just believe that Tarkovsky somehow conjured the wind himself. Mm-hmm. I really do. It's the only explanation I can come up with is that he just said, I need the wind to come through slowly in this scene and provoke that reaction in my audience and the characters on screen and the wind obliged because it's Tarkovsky. It's, I think, I don't think you've seen Nostalgia yet have his, right, Adam? No. Because that one, there is so much conjuring in this manner going on that. You you won't even know what to do with yourself. It's hmm. just unreal the forces he seems to align on film, which this is absolutely a taste of. Perfect transition into what really isn't a category itself. Well, we're going to throw in a little bonus one here, Josh, that Sam came up with. And I'm going to do the heavy lifting. I just want to see if you agree with me here because I think you will. Sam said we should touch on who we think, based on this marathon, all blind spots again, not necessarily the directors, we were unfamiliar with all of their work, but these films obviously give us a great sense of what these filmmakers are about. Who's the director most deserving of a future marathon? And maybe which director is most likely to get a future marathon? So I have I have a little bit of math for you, not in a spreadsheet, I promise, okay. but a little bit of math. We had four of our six directors had two films in the top 100. Mizuguchi with Sancho the Bailiff and Yugetsu. Cirque had two with Imitation of Life and All That Heaven Allows. Chris Marker had two with Sans Soleil and La Jete. Edward Yang had two, A Brighter Summer Day and Yi Yi. One director only had one. That was Fassbender, Fear Eats the Soul. One director had three in the top 100, and that was Tarkovsky with Mirror, with Stalker, and Andre Rublev. Also, all three of Tarkovsky's, those three films, they also made the directors top 100 list. You can't say that about any of the other filmmakers whose work we looked at. Markers 2 did make it. Yang's 2 did make it. Fassbender's 1 made it. Mizuguchi and Cirque don't show up on the director's poll. So you've got Tarkovsky with three films making both lists. In terms of his overall stature and influence, also the perfect size for a marathon. I mean, Mizuguchi had 86 films. I don't know how many of them are available, but he made 86 films. Tarkovsky only made seven feature films. That is the perfect marathon lineup. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in one where we've seen films by Tarkovsky, and that factors in. These marathons are about holes in our cinematic education. They're about blind spots. And I've seen four of those seven. I've seen Mirror, Solaris, Andre Rublev and The Sacrifice. I need to see Stalker, Ivan's Childhood, and Nostalgia. If I've seen over half the films, that's not usually what we look for. But I was going to say those first two, Stalker and Ivan's Childhood, are huge blind spots. You've made me now think Nostalgia is a third huge blind spot. And I'd be happy to revisit Solaris and Andre Rublev and Sacrifice. So it feels to me like Tarkovsky is the obvious choice, but he also might be the non-obvious choice because I've seen four and you've seen at least four, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I think I've seen five of those, but these are movies you'll never get to the bottom of, is the mm-hmm. other thing. 
Yeah, that would that would be my choice because I, I think I've said before in the show I I want to be a Tarkovsky completist. I I think with each one I see, he's probably going to be the one I regard as the greatest filmmaker of all time. Hmm. So, to, in order to say that, you got to see everything the person made, right? Right. But to your point about you know if we did want to educate ourselves, that would probably be Mizuguchi for me. And have to explore more of his. So I could go either way on those. My personal preference would be Tarkovsky. It was going to be Mizuguchi as the obvious runner-up for me too. And in the end, I came back to Fassbender. And Fassbender's been on the list. He's been on the potential future marathon topic list for a very, very long time. At least a decade. And I think it's because I was looking over his filmography, Josh, and he's got a pretty famed and acclaimed trilogy called the BRD trilogy. I've only seen one of those three. I've seen Veronica Voss, studied it, had to write about it in film school. But Lola is another film that people really go for. The Marriage of Maria Braun, those round out that trilogy. The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kent is a big blind spot. I've always been curious about World on a Wire and Beware of a Holy Whore. And looking at his films and other lists of his best work, Fox and His Friends is one that came up a lot, and one piece described it as a personal favorite by Fassbender, who ventured into uncharted territory with this project, a milestone, appropriate for this show, a milestone in the evolution of new queer cinema. And then we'd have to figure out what to do with Berlin Alexanderplatz. Oh, this gosh. was this, this epic TV series set in the 1920s that was 13 episodes long in 15 hours, right? Yes. Maybe that should be its own marathon. So I at least wanted to give Fassbender some love in terms of education about his work. I think Fassbender would be my next choice after Tarkovsky. And I mean, Ali was the first Fassbender for me. So that would okay. make a lot of sense as well. Okay. Finally, we're at the culmination of this marathon. Our BFI Award for Best Picture, six movies, as we've said, two films that you could call endurance tests. They're very long. One is extremely sad and one's not exactly happy. Sancho the Bailiff and A Brighter Summer Day. You've got two very personal, very avant-garde films, Mirror and Sans Soleil. And you've got two romantic melodramas that are also both really Douglas Sirk films. Imitation of Life and Fear Eats the Soul, which is basically an adaptation of a Douglas Sirk film. Your runner-up and your best picture. Runner-up is A Tie, Brighter Summer Day, and Sancho the Bailiff. They're in their own tier there for me. But best picture, no surprise, it is Mirror. I keep waiting for a Tarkovsky that isn't a masterpiece. And with each one I watch, I realize, no, he's done it again. It's interesting going into this one. I thought which is a weird thing to go into a movie thinking, but this this will probably be it because I knew a little bit it was more drawn from his own memories. It involved his family, more personal. Eh, there's potential for some meta-navel-gazing sort of stuff here that doesn't work for me quite as well as his sci-fi explorations or just his more philosophical religious explorations. Nope. It's still awe-inspiring. <laughs> deep in ways we'll probably never get to the bottom of. And I still don't find off-putting or homeworky at all because all of this is also mesmerizing for yeah. me. So it's mirror. It is one of the more challenging films in the marathon, though. Let's say that. I could definitely see some people thinking it's not accessible. And there's some there's some distancing there that I think Tarkovsky has built in. With that in mind, 
it's why I went with Imitation of Life as my runner-up. It would be Imitation of Life or Sancho the Bailiff, but Imitation of Life would be the movie if I was talking to someone and they said, I've only got time for one of these films, which one should I see? I could see nudging them in the direction of the Cirque film. I think it's that well-acted that sophisticated in terms of how it deals with its subject matter, how much it rises above what we might expect from a cliched melodrama. It's anything but that. And again, we do get some of those really wonderful visual moments with the camera that I've touched on as well. So Imitation of Life right now is my second favorite film from the marathon. But yeah, it's it's mirror for me, Josh, as well. And it's this simple. It gave me the greatest number of sublime moments to consider. It's the film I thought about the most deeply, whether or not I expressed that all during our discussion or not. It is the one internally I tried to process the most. And people who listen to those future or those subsequent conversations will know it's the film I ended up processing every other film after it through. It was like I couldn't see anything if I wasn't seeing it through the lens of Tarkovsky and Mirror after I watched it. So that was enough reason for me to give it my best picture yeah no i think that's solid reasoning if it if if you can't shake it that says something yes for the full sight and sound marathon lineup and if you'd like to check out all of these films and conversations go to filmspotting.net slash marathons or just go to the main page and click on marathons right there at the top our plan has been to do later this summer our next marathon we usually try to get to two a year african cinema is what we have selected. We have the films in mind. You can get a peek at that tentative lineup. I don't know that it's going to change much, but we're always open to ideas and suggestions. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net, that lineup there at our website, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And that's also where you'll find all of our BFI picks, all of those sight and sound marathon awards that we just ran through. Josh, that is our show. It is. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can support us by joining the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early. You also get it ad free. You'll get a weekly newsletter written by our producer, Sam as well as monthly bonus shows. Is it official, Adam? Our May bonus show, we brought on guest Brett Berryman. We did a 1998 draft. Has he won the listener poll as to who drafted the best films from that year? Well, I was going to say, I think we could officially call it, except at this point, by one vote, I'm in last place. So maybe I don't want to call it. This feels like an arbitrary time to call Mm -hmm. it, Josh. Maybe we should should leave it open a little little longer. Until maybe if you leave it open for a few years, you'll win at some point. Yeah, I thought I really did better than that. But right now, look, it doesn't matter. I'm at 13%. You're at 14. It's one vote. Sam is up there at 22. Brett taking 50% of the vote. As we speculated live on the show at the conclusion of the draft, he really did seem to have the winning picks. It's a great, fun bonus show to start with if you're someone who has thought about joining the Film Spotting family but hasn't taken the plunge. You get monthly bonus shows like that. We have another really good one coming up and Ask Us Anything where we're going to respond to questions from our family members. We're also going to talk a little bit about a recent survey from Rotten Tomatoes where they're looking back on their 25 years of existence and they ask critics to weigh in on their favorites, movies and TV shows 
of the last 25 years. We'll talk about that a little bit on that bonus show as well. And in addition to the bonus show, as a Film Spotting family member, filmspottingfamily.com, you also can get access to our full archive and some of the movies on my list, Josh, Brokeback Mountain, that was reviewed by Sam and myself on episode 66. Our marathon discussion of the times of Harvey Milk was episode 133. And the two of us did a My Own Private Idaho Sacred Cow discussion along with our top five films of 91 on episode 488. Just a sampling of what you can find in our archive. That's filmspottingfamily.com. In wide release, you can see Transformers Rise of the Beasts or streaming Flamin' Hot. Did Sam make this up or is this real? The no, true this story is real. of the, the Frito Lay janitor. Two weeks in a row for Frito Lay. We need to start getting some sponsorship uh-huh. money. <laughs> the true story of the Frito Lay janitor who invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Eva Longoria is directing that. That is coming to Hulu. Limited release, you can see The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future, a standout at the 2022 Sundance Film Fest. Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox calls it mysterious and elegiac. Lynch Oz, which I recommended on last week's show, that's playing at the Music Box, as is Close to Vermeer, the documentary I recommended this week. Blue Jean, a new one that our friend Mariah E. Gates calls one of the best films I've ever seen about the importance of community and mutual aid within the lesbian community. Its use of the anti-LGBTQ legislation of the Thatcher era as a mirror to what's happening in our time is incredibly powerful. And you can also see the film that some have called the best film of the year so far. Michael Phillips is one of those people on this very show, Past Lives. That's the new one from director Celine Song, a new A24 release. And I think it's going to roll out to some more screens on the 16th and then even more after that. We're going to hold off, even though we're both desperate to see it, and then we'll probably be desperate to talk about. We're actually going to hold off a little bit until more people can see it, and we're going to pair it closer to the end of the month with the new one from Wes Anderson, Asteroid City. That should be a fun show. We're also going to have fun next week on the show. Tune in for Pop Culture Happy Hours, Aisha Harris. She's got a new book coming out, well, in a few days as we're recording this. Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shaped Me. We're going to share the top five characters who shaped us. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.